Can you hear me now? There we go. Please open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And as you do, as, as many of you are aware, we are in the middle, week five, of an eight-week sermon series studying doctrines of sin and salvation and sanctification, or another way of phrasing this, how do Christians... How do Christians deal with, how are we to deal with sin in our lives? And not just little sins like impatience or the, the occasional anxiety, but real sin. How do we make war? How do we grow? And how do we confess it? What do we do with the sin that remains in us? And we've seen in the first week the importance of dealing with sin, that our fellowship with God is at stake, our fellowship with one another is at stake, and ultimately the proof the vindication of our salvation itself is at stake in how we deal or do not deal with sin. And then we saw um, the confessing sin and speaking rightly about it is crucial. And then we saw in week two the, the difference between a sorrow, a regret, like Judas, like Saul over sin, that doesn't lead to repentance and change. And, and what we're after is a sorrow that leads to repentance, that leads to salvation, and that the scriptures give clear fruit to look for in in bearing forth repentance. And then last week, we looked at the notion of, or sorry, two weeks ago, sorry, the process of change, how the Lord would have us put off the old man and to put on the new man created in Christ and to be renewed in our minds. And then last week, Pastor Daniel showed us the role of the word in all of this. How does God's word relate to change, to the battle with indwelling sin. This week, we're going to look at a, a complementary notion. How does our relationship with the Lord, and in particular, how does seeing him by faith, seeing his glory, how does that empower us to fight sin? What role does that have? Why, why is that important? The message this morning is held removing the veil, the transforming power of seeing God's glory. And I, and I truly believe that as we go through this, this study this morning, you will see, I hope, that seeing the beauty of God in Christ is crucial, is crucial to your salvation, is crucial to your understanding of the word, and it is crucial to your sanctification. So let's read the text, and then we will try to learn how this fits in. 2 Corinthians 3, we'll start actually in verse 7. 2 Corinthians 3. Now, If the ministry of death carved in letters of stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was a glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, how much more will what is permanent have glory? And since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But 
When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Christ Jesus is Lord, with ourselves as your slaves for Christ's sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, there was a glory that came in the Old Covenant. There was a glory that came with the giving of the law at Sinai. And what we are told here is that the glory that has come now in the New Covenant, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, far far exceeds that glory. And so, Lord, we know that if we do not see that glory, it is, it is no indication of, of the failure of your gospel, but our blindness. And so, Lord, we pray, would you come now? Would you open blind eyes? Would you help us to see? Would you give us ears to hear? Would you speak light into our hearts? Would you give the increase? Show us wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now this wonderful passage in 2 Corinthians draws upon a, a often missed detail in a very familiar passage. So quickly, would you turn back to Exodus 34, which is what Paul is referencing. In, in, in 2 Corinthians, Paul is trying to compare the superiority of the new covenant the superiority in particular of the glory of the new covenant. And he makes a comparison to Moses coming down from the mountain, now for the second time, bringing the law to the people. As you remember, the first time when Moses came down from the mountain, the people were worshiping a golden calf. And Moses broke the Ten Commandments all at once, and he went back up on the mountain, and he pleaded with God. And in that context, he cries out, O oh Lord, show me your glory. And God says, You can't see my glory and live, yet I will hide you in a cleft of a rock, and I will cause all my goodness to go past, and I will proclaim my name to you. And that encounter with God, we read in Exodus 34, starting in verses 29, changed Moses. And so when he comes down a second time with the Ten Commandments, what you may have missed, and what Paul is zooming in on, by the way, another indication of the value of Scripture in all of its detail, Apostle Paul, all, all that we just read in 2 Corinthians is bouncing off of, riffing off of, contrasting this one detail that Moses' face shone, and that he put a veil over it. So we read that in Exodus 34, starting in verse 
29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation came to him, and Moses talked with them. And afterwards, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what was commanded, the people of Israel would see that the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face until he went in to speak with him again. And, and we know that story of, of Moses coming down with the Ten Commandments, but Paul is zooming in on, on this glory. Moses had an encounter with the living God. He went up on a mountain that shook and quaked, and lightnings flashed, and even from there he was hid in the cleft of a rock, and God walked by and declared his name. And, and there's that aftertrail of God's glory made Moses' face shine, and, and quite frankly, it freaked out the Israelites. It's kind of creepy. At least they thought so. And he comes down, he doesn't realize his face is shining, is luminescent, and, and after he speaks to them, he puts a veil on. Puts a veil on because it was it was weirding them out. And also, Paul indicates in 2 Corinthians 3, because the, the glory would fade. And Moses didn't want them to see the glory fading. The glory would sort of fade, and he'd go in and he'd talk with God again, and he'd come out, and his face would be shining again. And so Paul, in 2 Corinthians, you can go back to 2 Corinthians 3 now, is, is making a contrast. And one of the things that's tricky in following along with him is he will adopt this notion of a veil, but he'll start changing it. In fact, he uses it at least two different ways additionally to the example of Moses. So if you read through this, in the first paragraph, verses 7 through 11, the emphasis here is primarily just on the superiority. If the ministry of death, by which he refers to the Mosaic law, carved in letters of stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, notice that emphasis, the glory was fading, it was always fading, Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was a glory in the ministry of condemnation, and there was, there was a glory in the giving of the law. You you can't read the Old Testament without seeing that. Don't don't think that just because the new covenant is better, the old covenant was bad. It it wasn't. It isn't. The new covenant is better. Indeed, in the ministry of righteousness, he says, verse 9, must far exceed its glory. Indeed, in this case, that which had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. In the same way that that if you have a flashlight in a darkened room, it looks very bright. And if you step out into the midday sun on a hot Iowa summer day, that little flashlight doesn't seem to have any more glory or light anymore, does it? It's been eclipsed. And he says, in the same way, the glory of the new covenant has surpassed it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. And so one of the, the contrasting elements that Paul is pointing out is the new covenant is permanent. It's not temporary. The law of Moses was temporary. It was a tutor, Paul says, to keep us charge of us until Christ came. And then... In the next paragraph, he starts to use this metaphor of a veil slightly differently. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, 
who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. And so he's saying, we proclaim with no shame, with much boldness, this superior glory in the gospel. But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. And what Paul is addressing is, as he declares, I mean, think about this. Moses' face literally glowed. That's how powerful and how glorious the Old Covenant was. Paul's face isn't glowing as he's preaching the gospel. I think Stephen's face was shining, but we're not sure if that just meant beaming or literally phosphorescent. But, but you could say, well, Paul, you, you say this gospel has more glory. Your face isn't shining. And, and look at all your Israelite com- countrymen. They, they don't believe this. And Paul says, in their case, they're the ones with the veil. It's not that my gospel is veiled. Those who, who haven't turned to Christ are veiled. See that? So he's shifted. Moses was wearing a veil. We've gone from Moses wearing a veil to unbelievers, as they try to read the Bible, having a veil. But their minds, verse 14, were hardened for to this day when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. And he says the way that that veil is lifted, the way you can begin to understand the Bible, is by turning to Christ. But then... In chapter 4, verse 3, he speaks of a slightly different veil. Paul's just sort of grabbing this metaphor. He thinks it's a good explanation. So we've seen Moses had a veil, literal veil, in Exodus 34. A figurative veil lies over the hearts of unbelievers to keep them from understanding and seeing Christ in the Old Testament. But Now look at chapter 4, verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So there's a veil in reference towards the Bible, and there's a veil in reference to seeing something beautiful in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so as we study this issue this morning, I'm just going to ask three questions we're going to try to unpack. First, first question, why is it crucial that we see God's glory? Why devote a week of an eight-week series to this topic, seeing glory? Why is it crucial? Well, we've sort of looked at it here at three points, but I just want you to see that this text makes it very clear that three crucial things hinge upon our ability to see glory in the gospel of Jesus Christ and in the person of God. First, without it, we cannot be saved. I don't know if you know that. You cannot be saved if you don't see glory in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at chapter 4, verse 3. There are two types of people in this world. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. What, what is the defining quality of perishers? Blindness to glory in the gospel. Get that. Why do they perish? Our gospel is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So you present the gospel to someone and they say, eh, not interested. It's not because they saw it for what it was and saw Christ for who he was. They're blinded. And unless they can see truly what's going on there, they will perish Unless you here today see some glory, some beauty in the gospel, you will perish. Seeing glory in the gospel is crucial in salvation. You can't be saved without it, according to this passage. Secondly, it's crucial in our understanding of Scripture. 
Back earlier in, in chapter 13, verses 14 to 15, this veil lies over the heart. But when is it removed? It's removed through Christ when one turns to the Lord. And, and we just saw in chapter 4, how is one going to turn to the Lord unless they see glory? If you don't see glory in the gospel, you won't turn to Christ. If you don't turn to Christ, you're going to have a veil blocking your sight of the text. So seeing glory in the person of Jesus Christ and the gospel of God and in his person and being is crucial for salvation. It's crucial for our understanding of Scripture. And fitting into our point in this series, without it we cannot be sanctified. It is crucial for sanctification. Look at verse 18. How is it that we are transformed and changed? And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. You think about when we talked about two weeks ago, being putting off and putting on, that renew, that transforming power. All of our putting off and putting on in the world will, will profit nothing if we're not seeing glory and being changed by it. This is the power source to change. This is the fuel for fighting sin, the fuel for worship, and the fuel for our sanctification. How important is it, how critical is it that we see glory in the gospel? You, you can't be saved if you don't see glory. You can't understand the Bible unless you see glory. And you won't be sanctified. You won't become more like Jesus Christ if you're not seeing glory. Now, I know that's an awful lot. And what we're going to spend the rest of our time in the next two points is explaining how is that so. Before we move on, I just want you to see in the text it is so. Why do people perish? Because they're blinded from seeing glory. Why don't people understand the Bible? There's a veil over their hearts. It's only removed when they turn to Christ. Then they turn to Christ when they see glory. How are we transformed? Beholding, verse 18, the glory of the Lord. I want you to see that all three of those things are crucially dependent on seeing glory. So then what does it mean, this is point two, what does it mean for us to see glory? This is a term we use here and there, mostly in Christian circles, and like many Christian terms, we can use it repeatedly without really having much understanding what we're talking about. In fact, I've talked to some people who really just think this is a meaningless term. Like, I know we as Christians talk about glory, but what do we mean? And if we're honest, sometimes we're singing lyrics, Oh Lord, your glory, and we don't even know what we're talking about. What does it mean? Is this just Christian highfalutin language? No, it's, it's central. It's important. What is God's glory? Well, it's, it's intricately connected to his holiness. God's holiness is what sets him apart from everything. It's his perfections. The glory of God is, and here are your blanks, the outward radiance and beauty of God's perfections. It's God's holiness is his perfection. And God's glory is that holiness being viewed and entering into creation and being seen. That's why it uses light languages. God's glory shines forth. But they're intricately connected. Listen to Isaiah 6.3. When Isaiah has that vision of the Lord high and lifted up and the seraphim are crying out and one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Because God is holy, 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 his glory which is the manifestation of his holiness, is just filling the earth and creation and the universe. God's glory is the outward radiance and beauty of his perfections. And the Bible can speak about God's glory in total, 
The Lord is holy. The Lord is glorious. The Bible can also speak of God's glory zooming into particular things. We can talk about Ephesians 1.6. We were predestined to the praise of his glorious grace. God is glorious. God's grace is glorious. There's a glory to his grace. 1 Thessalonians 1.9. Talking about those who will perish, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. God's might is glorious. Psalm 66, 2, we are to sing the glory of his name. Psalm 145, 11, they will speak of the glory of your kingdom. And in Revelation 21, when the new heavens and the new earth arrive, there is no sun. There is no moon. Why? The city has no need of sun or moon, Revelation 21, 23, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamb, lamp is the lamb. So we can speak about God's glory in a big, total sense, or we can zoom in on the glory of his saving acts, or the glory of his wisdom. Or the, it's, it's wherever you see God's beauty and perfection on display, that's glory. But there's another way of thinking about glory, and this is the second blank here, that which creates worship, joy, and awe within us. Glory is that which creates worship, joy, and awe within us. You see, we were made for glory. God made us for his glory. We were made to interact with glory. All of us are glory seekers. You can't escape this. And when we encounter glory, it produces something in us spontaneously. It produces worship. It produces joy. It produces awe. This, this I think, helps explain to some degree why God is calling upon us to worship him. God, God is calling upon us to adore him. Why God is calling on us to praise him. It's not because, as C.S. Lewis said, it's not because he's some vain old lady who wants everyone to tell him he's pretty. But rather, he knows that the greatest joy that you and I will ever have, the greatest fulfillment we will ever have, is when we see him as he is. And when we see him as he is, we won't be able to help but to praise him, but to delight in him, to rejoice in him. I mean, you get this, right? You get this when you're, you're, when you're, at, a, when you're at a sporting event, a football game, and, and someone makes a masterful play, and there is glory in that. There, there is glory in the created order. Now, it's a reflected glory from God, but you see someone at the last second making that long pass, and the runner's out, and he catches it, and he scores the, the winning touchdown. I got that right, right? Okay. <laughs> touchdown. We're talking about football. And what happens do the people think, that was glorious? I think an appropriate response would be praise and cheering. No, they're not thinking. They're out of their seats, right? Their hands are raised. And what comes out of their mouth? Praise, cheering. In fact, the joy is in that. And not only that, this is how it flows over to evangelism. When you've seen the great game, what do you do after you watch the game? Or you, you send to the concert. You, you want to talk to somebody else about it. You see him the next day. Did you see that play? And they're not doing it because, well, I support my team, and so I have a duty to proselytize them and evangelize them. They're doing it because there is a joy in expressing the glory of what you saw, right? The joy isn't complete. You go see a great summer blockbuster. We're in summer blockbuster season now, and you're like, did you see the Battle of Middle Earth and Lord of the Rings? He's like, whoa. I'm showing how old I am now. You know, that was, what, a decade ago? I suppose it would be, did you see the X-Men or whatever, the new special effect? And You want to find something. You go on the internet, you talk about it. Because there's a joy that comes in talking about the glory you see. It's, it's the fulfillment of it. We're made for glory. When you see a gorgeous sunset, you don't think to yourself, 
well, I suppose it would be appropriate for me to praise that, and I suppose I should. You just, whoa, look at that. You see the rainbow. Do you get how we're made for glory? We're hardwired for it. When we see it, we respond. We can't help it. You go to the Grand Canyon, look over the edge. You just go, whoa, it just creates it in us. And when we start to see the glory of God, worship doesn't become a duty or a chore. It becomes a delight. Worship is, is fueled by the glory of God. We were made for this. And this then, I think, helps us as we turn our attention to how does this relate to sin, is what then is at the root of all sin? Listen to the text of, of Romans 1, 18 to 23. Why is God angry with sin? What is at its root what bothers him about sin? Romans 1, 18 to 23. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What truth? Keep reading. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Notice the use of light language. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And here it is. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. What is the fundamental offense of sin? We see the evidence of this great, glorious, beautiful God. And we go, I don't want to see that. And we shut our eyes to it. We're like the, the child who's trying to pretend you're not there by putting their hands over their eyes. I can't see you, so you don't exist. And then we look at these lesser glories. And rather than letting the glory, and there is a glory in, 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 in athletic prowess. There is a glory in human ability. There's a glory in looking at heroic deeds on a memorial day and looking at the, the valor and the blood shed for our freedoms. There's a glory there, to be sure. But we shut our eyes to the, the, the glory of God and we run after these other things. And you see the tremendous insult and offense to the holiness of God. Jeremiah 2, 12 to 13 puts it this way. Be appalled, O heavens. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns, can hold no water. There's, a, there's, there's an endless supply of life-giving water, and we turn our nose up it. No, thanks. And we go over, and we crouch down and get on the ground to mud puddles. Broken cisterns, what's left there is just mud puddle at the bottom. And we're trying to suck the water out and go, mm, that's good. And so we ignore the glory of God, and we run after the glory of sex, the glory of money and power and fame and achievement and accomplishment, and all these lesser glories. We worship the creation rather than the creator who is forever blessed. We worship the glory of things, and not the God whose glory they reflect. See, sin, here's the point, the blank, is the refusal to see and be satisfied with the glory of God. It's the willful refusal to see and be satisfied with the glory of God. Long before Paul's laundry list of sins that end Romans chapter 1, the root of sin is this intentional holding down, suppressing, trading. No, I don't want God's glory. Let me worship something else. I'll worship that. 
And we find more joy and delight in the creation rather than the creator. Listen to this description of sinful people in Philippians 3, 18 to 19. For many of whom, Paul writes, I've often told you, and now even tell you with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their God is their destruction. Their God is their belly. And their glory is their shame. See, everyone's pursuing glory. Some of us just pursue glory in shameful things. But all of us are looking for something to satisfy us. We sang with that earlier, being satisfied. All of us are looking for things to delight and thrill us. All of us are, are worshipers. All of us are, are looking for glory. And sin, the heart of sin is saying, there is more joy and more delight and more satisfaction and, and more glory in this thing than in the God who made it. So how then does this connect to salvation, scripture, and sanctification? Well, first off, you can fill in the blanks here. What we love is what is Lord. What we love is what is Lord for us. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. But, but turn to John chapter 3. How does this connect to salvation? You will never come to a savior you hate. You will never come to a God whose glory offends you. And you will never forsake your sin as long as it delights you. The end of Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus, John 3, verse 19. This is the judgment. This is the verdict. This is the conclusion of the matter. Light has come into the world. People love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. Why don't people come to Jesus according to this passage? Is it because the arguments we present for the resurrection are, are less than compelling? No. The bedrock reason people don't turn to Jesus Christ in faith. They don't see anything beautiful there. They don't love what they see there. They love the darkness. They're seeing glory somewhere else. If you don't see glory, if you don't see something beautiful, if you don't see something satisfying in the person of Jesus Christ, you will never come to him. Like a cockroach and the lights turn on, you will scatter and run the other way. That's how this connects. If you see glory, more glory and more delight and more worth and more value in sin... That's what you'll build your life upon. That's what you'll build your life upon. What we love is what is Lord. Turn a chapter to John 5, 44. Explicitly, Jesus makes this connection between what we love, what glory we seek, and faith. John 6, 44, in a, in a just scathing indictment of the Pharisees. The Pharisees did not reject Jesus because they had an honest misunderstanding of the text. They were honestly confused what the text means. No, Jesus says this to them. John 5, 44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from only God? And that's a rhetorical question with the obvious answer, you can't. Which means, as long as the glory you're seeking is earthly, terrestrial glory... Glory unto the Son, you can't believe. How, Jesus says, can you believe 
when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from only God. Well, you're, if you're seeking and serving and pursuing the glory and the delight and the joy of things here, it's precisely that love of those things that will keep you from turning to the glory of God in Christ. This is why the gospel call is not just a call of faith, but a call of turning from, repentance from sin to Christ. We were worshiping and serving one glory, now we turn to another to build our lives upon him and his worth, finding our satisfaction and joy in him. The second reason, though, why this connects, and that is we behold what we become. We behold what we become. Now, that may sound complicated. Another way of saying it is what we revere, we resemble. Whatever you're staring at, whatever you're pursuing, whatever you are building your life upon, that will be the shaping influence of your life. You can't, you can't believe, you can't come to Christ, you can't believe if, if you see glory in other things and not Him. You can't understand the Bible if you don't see glory. But here, when we think about sanctification, what is the shaping influence of our life? What we behold is what we become. Now turn to Psalm 115. And while you turn there, let me read for you a passage in Matthew that I think is familiar, but I think we don't fully understand what's going on. Here's Matthew, Jesus speaking about why he speaks in parables. Matthew 13, 16. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing, they do not see, and hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case... The prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull with their ears. They can barely hear with their eyes. They have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn. And I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Jesus is indicting these unbelievers because they have eyes that do not see and ears that do not hear and hearts that do not feel. Why is, why is that the case? Well, he's building upon Psalm 115, which makes a remarkable statement. I want you to get this. Start in verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness, why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. Ears, but do not hear. Is this starting to sound a little familiar? Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Verse 8, those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. What is Jesus saying when he says, these people have eyes but do not see and ears but do not hear, hearts but do not feel? He's saying these people have already been conformed to the gods they are worshiping. They've been made like them. You worship dumb, blind, deaf, unfeeling creation, you will become dumb, blind, deaf, and unfeeling yourself. What you revere is what you will resemble. What you behold is what you will become. This is why when, when Jesus appeared to Paul, describing the ministry he would give him in Acts 26, 15 to 18, 
He says this to him, rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things to which you have seen of me and to those which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins in a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul's ministry was a ministry of opening blind eyes so people could be saved. See, all of us are born into this world as idolaters, as sinners, blinded, deaf, dumb, because of the things we worship and serve. And so if we want to grow in the image of Christ, if we want to grow in grace, we've got to stop being shaped and conformed to the things of this world, as Paul says in Romans 12. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Which is why what Paul says now back in 2 Corinthians 3.18 is such good, good news. How do, we, how do we grow? How do we change? We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So yes, we've seen it's true. If you worship and serve idols, you will become like them. If you worship and serve the living God, you will become like him. If you see his glory, if you are delighted by his greatness, if you are pleased by his goodness, if, if it is the joy from him that you seek, you will become like him. That's why this matters. That's why this matters. What we revere, we resemble. What we behold, we will become. So I hope now you see the significance. This is important. Is it some small deal whether or not you see glory? No, it is not. It is crucial. Which then begs the question in point three. How then are we to fight by faith to see God's glory? Because this is all great. I'm sure some of you are thinking, that's great and all, Jeremy. But this could actually be bad news if you don't see glory or if you see very little glory. It can be frustrating. I know I've talked to people who are frustrated by this. You know, you, you guys are always talking about the glory of God and joy in the Lord. I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm just frustrated. I'm just discouraged. You guys, you guys talk a good game. I, I just, I, nothing clicks for me. So point three, how do we fight by faith to see God's glory? Four steps. One, stop. Stop and recognize our need and inability. And what I mean here is this. This is, this is some part of your spiritual life you cannot take out and survive. There are some organs in your body you can live without. There are some organs you lose them, they're gone. You cannot function as a Christian without seeing and delighting in the glory of God and Jesus Christ. You cannot. If you think to yourself, well, I know there are some Christians who like worship, and I know there are some Christians who get excited about God. I'm just one of the Christians that doesn't. Then I don't think you're a Christian. Let me, let me say that again. If you... According to 2 Corinthians 4, if you do not and have not ever seen glory and something beautiful and something satisfying in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are not a Christian. I say that with all the certainty of 2 Corinthians 4. If you have been and are blinded to the glory of God in Christ, you are not a Christian. It's possible you've seen glory before and now you've strayed and you've wandered and and you're not seeing anything now. You you may be a Christian, but if you never have and are not seeing anything beautiful, delightful, wonderful, the gospel of God, you're not a Christian. 
So stop. Don't, don't think, well, I'll, I'll just get to this later. Stop and recognize your need. Recognize that for all, each and every one of us, seeing something beautiful in God's word, seeing something beautiful in him is the greatest need you have. And then let me make the news a little worse. Recognize your inability. Maybe you already know this. Maybe you've tried. Maybe you've tried getting in the word. You can't make yourself see beauty in what you don't see beauty in. You can't make yourself delight in what you don't see as delightful. And the text makes this clear. What, what is the remedy to the blindness of unbelievers in, in, in chapter 4, verse 6? It's a work of God. It's not a work of man. But God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What's the remedy to not seeing glory? God has to do something in your heart. God has to remove a veil. God has to, to, to create light. So we are desperately in need, and we are woefully unable. It's the same language of Jesus. Unless you're born again, you can't even see the kingdom of God. Good luck birthing yourself. I've, I've been to a delivery room now three times. Never was the baby there helping deliver itself. But there is good news. There is hope. But the reason I want to make this point is this. If you try to function as a Christian without, without this, if you think, I'll just fake it till I make it, as one popular prosperity teacher says, then you'll end up being like me at a Super Bowl party. I go to the Super Bowl parties because I, I like the food. And, and I go to the Super Bowl parties, and they put the game on, and I have no idea what I'm watching. It's, it's great. It's big screen TV. I mean, it's sure big and clear what I'm seeing. But I'm watching it, and, I'm, and when everyone else starts cheering, it's sort of like, well, I guess something exciting is happening. Go, my team! Go, my favorite sports team. Move the thing to the other thing. You know, and you sort of play along because you don't want to just sit there like an idiot while everyone else is like roaring and yelling, right? So you come to worship service and you don't see anything beautiful in God, but man, everyone else here is raising their hands and singing. I guess I better do that. And everyone else is praying. I guess I'll pray. And you fake it. You become a hypocrite. That's, that's not the answer. That's not the answer at all. Step two, first stop, second, read, read, read the Bible. Where does God reveal his glory? Well, he reveals his glory in all of creation. But most clearly, most savingly in his word, read, read. But you got to read with the right attitude. Maybe you've done that. I've tried reading the Bible. It doesn't help. Are you coming to the Bible looking for glory? Are you coming to the Bible looking for something beautiful and glorious? So remember, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees. How can you believe? You seek the glory that comes from man, not the glory that comes from God. You come into the Bible saying, God, I need to see something beautiful here. I need to see some glory here. Is that how you're coming to the Bible? You're coming to the Bible. I'm a good Christian. I did my quiet time. Check. You have your reward, if that's the case. Read. Third, pray. Pray. This is the real, the real issue for us. This is the real issue for us. Pray, asking that God would, would grant light. Pray. Because we, can, we, can, we can't heal ourselves, but like the blind man who cried out to Jesus, we can ask, oh, son of David, have mercy on me, right? He can't make himself see, but you can cry out. That's the part we can play. And we have this great promise from God that whoever asks, it will be given to them. Whoever seeks, they will find. Whoever 
Whoever knocks, it'll be opened. And the scriptures train us to pray this very way. Psalm 119. This is, this is given to us to show us how to pray. I pray this almost every time I read my Bible. Oh, Lord, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. We're dependent on God. But I want to use an illustration now at this point. Because sometimes I think, honestly, we can feel when we come to the Bible like we're in total darkness. And so I've got this crystal cup. The Bible is far more glorious than that, but this has got some glory. It's shiny. It's nice. And so here's me in my darkness holding the Bible out, holding out God's glory in front of me, trying to look at it. Because that's the first step. You've you got to look away from other lights. Because right now, if I were to turn on just the light on my phone, it would seem bright, wouldn't it? And you can stare at that. And if I'm staring at my phone and not this, I'm not going to see anything over here. So you've got to put it in front of your eyes. And you get in the Word and you read, and you read looking for glory, and you pray and you ask God to do something. And you keep praying because he tells us to persist in prayer and you don't look away and you keep staring. And here's, here's the miracle that happens. Here's, here's what God teaches us to do. Here's how it works. We pray and we say, oh, Lord God, I need to see your glory if I'm going to have any strength today. If I'm going to resist sin, it's only to be because I find a greater joy in you. If I'm going to survive and love my wife and love my kids, it's only going to be because I see something beautiful and I need to see it in your word and I can't open my eyes and I can't unstop my ears. Oh, Lord God, would you please, please show me your glory. You're like Moses on the mountaintop. Show me your glory. You're like Jacob wrestling with the angel. I will not let you go until you give me a blessing. And here's the amazing thing that happens in, in, in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. God, who's, who's spoke lightness, light out of darkness in Genesis, may, and he does, say, let there be light. And all of a sudden we see, and, and it's glorious. And, and it far outshines the glory of this toddly bauble. And God shines light in our hearts, and, and we get it. And our part in that miracle is to set the word before our eyes, and to call on God and to pray and to ask. That, that's why I'm belaboring this point. You won't labor in prayer for what you don't think you desperately need. You simply won't. You won't cry out to God in desperation for what you don't think you need. And he teaches us to pray that way. Listen to Paul's prayer for the Philippian church. We, we do prayer requests and, and we, we pray for good things, but we frequently don't pray for the best things. Listen to Paul's prayer in, in Philippians I mean, in Ephesians, I mean, sorry. In Ephesians chapter 3. It's this long-developed prayer. For this reason, I bow my knee before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, according to the riches of his glory. He's praying something according to glory, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that rooted and grounded in love, Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What is he saying? I want you to see the glory more than you do now of the love of God in Jesus Christ. That's what the Apostle Paul is praying for this church night and day. Oh, Lord, would you, and it's going to take the entire trinity at work. Will you, from your glory, through your spirit, to their inner being, will you reveal to them, help them to grasp a bigger picture of your, your love for them in Christ? Because that's what they're going to need to walk and be faithful. 
And so they're going to need to walk and be faithful. And finally, this isn't something we do alone. Gather. Gather together. Because some days we are weak and we feel like we're walking in darkness. When we gather together to hear, to speak, and to sing of the glories of Christ Jesus, we're reminded by others. So you can speak truth to yourself. You can cry out. But sometimes it's just being with other people that that you, you get encouraged This is how Colossians 3.16 works. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. You're looking at the word. It's teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts. Hebrews 10.23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. As is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day dawning. So we get together to encourage each other. If, if you are seeing God's glory, speak about it, share it, talk to other people. If you are feeling like your, your light is becoming darker and those lights are getting dimmer, get around others who can speak truth to you. And encourage you to see the glories of God in Christ. Our sanctification is directly tied to what we see when we look to God. And I know sometimes, if we're honest, when we look, we don't see anything beautiful. Call out. Ask him, stop what you are doing. Make the time to get in the word, to pray, and to gather. And we're going to close now with our final song which I think is quite aptly fitting. You heard it for the first time last week as a special music. It'll be new to most of you, but I think it'll be relatively easy to learn. But it's a heartfelt cry that God, through his word, would show us his son, Jesus Christ. Let's sing.